Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16 to uh, 24 this evening. I'm going to start uh, with a question that uh, has sparked uh, a lot of interest and intrigue uh, in a lot of people's minds and uh, happened on the social media platform of TikTok. I'm sure you're all uh, TikToking in your spare time. But uh, what the question was, was the question was asked by normally a, a woman would go up and film their their spouse, their boyfriend, their uh, friend that was uh, male and ask them one simple question. And they, they were quite astounded at the response that was given. And the question was, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And this uh, question sparked a lot of debate, and the, w- the women were asked the question, and they said, well, they couldn't think of a time when they've thought about the Roman Empire, or they'd been taken back to high school or college where there was some lecture there, and they might have thought about it then that short time. But the men who responded in this, how often do you think about the Roman Empire, they said, uh, quite surprisingly, you know, well, about once a week. About, I don't know, daily, some people asked, Sarah came up and asked me this question. I'd already heard about this trend that was going on, and she asked me the question, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And I said, well, I, I know about the, the trend that's going around, but I kind of have to think about it a lot because Jesus lived during the Roman Empire. So it comes up a lot in my reading and things like this, but she said, I hadn't thought about it since high school, basically. But... Uh, it's a great question to be able to ask. Uh, you can do it in your spare time. But uh, there are many discussions, studies about uh, empires. Uh, Edward Gibbon uh, wrote a work which was uh, spoke about the history and decline of the fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, he had six volumes which kind of unpacked the, what, why did Rome fall. What, what was it about that Rome, the Roman Empire that eventually tumbled and corrupt, uh, crumbled? He, he listed maybe about five major ones, but he said the first one was they, a gradual loss of their, their, their virtues, their civic virtues. And, and they said as, as Rome kind of grew more affluent and, and people in Rome uh, started to acquire more wealth, then what there was was they started looking more at their own individual desires and passions than outside of what it means to be a good citizen. The second one, which is probably the most controversial out of all of them, was that uh, the influence of Christianity. The Christianity came into the Roman Empire and corrupted the virtues that made the Roman Empire so great. Now, this is probably one of the most uh, debated aspects of what Gibbon had said. The third one was the overextension, that Rome just grew too big and too powerful for its own uh, ability, that they... It just spread so wide, and so uh, it was just so hard to be able to govern all these little pockets over this large bit. The fourth is barbarian invasions, that uh, there was all these barbarian tribes because it was so big, and there was all these tribes scattered throughout the Roman Empire, that all of these invasions slowly had an effect on uh, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire. The last one was internal weaknesses. And he cited this internal corruption that was apparent throughout the Roman Empire, the inefficiency to be able to handle matters, uh, the erratic rule of several incompetent emperors, 
as contributing factors. And, and he says all of these things, all these five major factors in some way or another affected the fall of the Roman Empire. Now you can study any empire and try and understand what is the main key factors that uh, led to their demise. Um, you know, and, and we see this in the passage that we're looking at now in First in Kings, particularly the, the split, the separation of the two, nor- the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the south- southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. What, what are the factors that led to this split? What are the factors that led to their demise? Slowly, we know what was about to happen in years to come. Interesting thing to be able to consider as we continue to read through First and Second Kings and study it. What would their list be? What were the major factors that led to the demise of Israel or the demise of Judah? Clearly, we would answer this as we saw last week, providence. <laughs> providence is, is the overarching thing that is all in God's will and God's plan. Uh, there's the split of Israel and Judah, although it was through foolish uh, choices and foolish advice that Rehoboam followed, it was ultimately because God had foretold it and God had said that's what would happen because of Solomon's sin of worshiping other idols and other gods. So we'll to continue to see this answer, why is, and what happens to these two nations as we study them together. But it, what's interesting is not just merely just saying the overarching theme of providence. What's interesting is seeing how providence is used and how God uses secondary means to be able to bring this about. What we see in verse 15 as we ended last week, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was the turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. That all of these things leading up this is all so the Lord would be able to fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the uh, Shilonite uh, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And so now we turn to verse 16. This change uh, speaks of the king not listening to the people in verse 15, but then there's a change of focus, what we see in verse 16. And when all of Israel saw the king did not listen to them, so here now Rehoboam's response is he doesn't listen. Now the people see that Rehoboam doesn't listen. And the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. So here is the, the, the point where these two nations are formed. These two nations, you might say, split from one another. The king says, you know, I'm not going to lighten this load that my father put upon you. I'm actually going to make it more severe. Instead of whips, I'm going to use scorpions. And so the, the people respond, and they respond in this way. That here, the, the king's foolish answer that he listened from these younger men that he grew up with uh, brings about this separation and split. And they ask this interesting question, what portion do we have in David? What portion do we have in David? So here their response is quite clear, that they see this demise and this split. Now it's interesting on three different levels. The first is that This question has been asked before. Exactly this question. And exactly in a similar situation. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 20, it's been a long time since we've studied it, but in 2 Samuel chapter 20, in the first two verses, we hear that uh, there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of uh, uh Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed the king steadfastly from the Jordan to from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So David is coming back uh, from this period of time of being in exile, and here he is. And Sheba, this worthless fellow, comes up and asks the exact same question that is asked uh, in First Kings chapter um, twelve. And what's important about this, before we continue to how the, it ends in 2 Samuel chapter 20, is we need to understand that we, often when we look at the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament and we put things in categories. We say this is the united kingdom, and then what happens is we have the divided kingdom. But even throughout all the period of time, when we speak of the united kingdom, it's still very tribal. There are still tribes that have their own identities, that have their own claims to fame and, and authority. Now, they, they come underneath a monarch of Saul, David, of uh, Solomon. But what we also see is that quite quickly, they're, they're quick and prone to be able to separate. When Saul dies, they follow Saul's son, Ishbosheth, while uh, Judah follows David. Same too, we see this throughout, that there's generally all this conflict between these periods of time. That it's never quite as clear-cut as it is. So when we come here to Second uh, to First Kings, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the response that happens. It's, it's something that happens has happened time and time again. Now what this is, is somewhat of a final split where the separation is long, is, there's a big uh, divide. Now, what we'll see is the kingdoms can kind of get along sometimes. They can kind of go against each other, have similar en- enemies, and other times have the same enemy, and that's what unites them as we look through. But here, uh, Bikri, uh, the Sheba, the son of Bikri, is, uh, is an example of this split that happens. Now, what happens in Second Samuel chapter 20 at the end there that uh, there's a response that, he, that basically wipes them all out. Joab is sent, and uh, he goes to be able to go find Sheba. He goes to this city, and in this city, uh, Sheba goes in, and he t- tries to take refuge. And Joab starts discussing with this lady about what's going to happen. Joab threatens and says, I'm going to level this city to the ground. If you don't, all I want is this one man, Sheba. He's the problem. But I'm going to level the whole city to be able to get Sheba. And this woman understands the sacrifice, and she goes and uh, takes Sheba. um, And he says, uh, and throws his head over the wall. So the wisdom is able to go and find this man, Sheba, cut off the head of the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Joab blows the trumpet, he dispersed from the city, and every man went to his own home. So Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So here, this is an interesting response that now the people of Israel have repeated this same cry. That we, what portion do we have in David? What inheritance do we have in the son of Jesse? 
So here, Sheba is opposed to David, God's anointed. Now what we have a little bit different in 1 Kings is that it's, it's slightly different in the sense that um, Jer- Jeroboam has been told by the Lord this is what's going to happen. Because of Solomon's sin, this divide is going to happen. This uh, conflict within them. God is going to rise up the ten tribes of Israel. But what they're asking in that specific request is that we are we seek to be able to be separated from David. The promises of the Davidic covenant. We'll get to that later. But here, the second aspect that we need to understand in this question, what they're seeking to be able to um, understand, is that we find it later in the Bible. Hosea writes about this in chapter 8. He writes about what happens to Israel, and this will be somewhat of a, a recollection for us as we continue to go through First and Second Kings, because it's quite important to be able to see how, how the prophets respond and write, or how the psalmist writes about events that happen in the, uh, the scriptures. But here in Hosea chapter, Hosea, uh, Hosea in chapter 8, uh, Hosea writes this, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cried, My God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And with their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. Now we'll see, uh, you can continue to read through Hosea and see more of what happens, but here one of the things that Hosea calls them out for is their uh, opposition to God's people. Specifically in verse 4 where Hosea writes that they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And here it is clearly a rebellion. We see this first in in First Kings, particularly that um, Rehoboam's house is, is uh, Jeroboam's house is against Rehoboam, and there's this word of this conflict that in there that here's there's this rebellion from the people of Israel to be opposed to uh, their king of Rehoboam. But finally, we really must understand what claim they are making when they say that they have no portion in David, no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Both of these words, portion and inheritance, speak of something that is to come. Often it speaks of the Lord's inheritance in the people of God in their land in which they dwell. This inheritance which is given, or the people of God are God's inheritance, something that he will possess forever. And they speak of this future rewards based on a standing in which they have. That a person has claimed this land because it's their inheritance, it's their portion, it's their, how, how the Lord divided the land. Now they do understand something important, and then they do miss something important as well. They understand something important. They understand that, that they, as the people of God, should receive blessings from their king. They should have a portion underneath their king as the people. They understand that a king in God's kingdom is one who gives rather than takes away. This is the warning that Samuel warns the people of God. He says, you want a king like other nations, this is what kings like other nations will do. 
they will take and take and take and take. Whereas a godly king is one who gives. And they saw that here, that Rehoboam was a king that was going to take. Solomon took from them, and now Rehoboam's going to take even more from them. They saw that they weren't merely just serving the king, they were slaves to a king. They saw Jerusalem get all of its building campaigns as their sons were used and abused to be able to build them, just like Egypt in their former days that the king had placed a heavy yoke upon the people of God. And Rehoboam was not going to stop. Now we need to understand that it's not merely that they didn't want to serve, that they merely didn't want to just do anything. We just want to be servants that, you know, you serve us. They actually were willing to serve. They said, we will be your servants. Just don't be so heavy handed. They were willing to serve their king, but that's the foolishness of Rehoboam, that he's willing to be able to just give all of this up. But there's one aspect in which they didn't quite understand. Although they were separating from David's horrible son, what they were actually claiming is they don't want anything to do with David. Rehoboam was a terrible king to the people. Solomon put a heavy hand on them, and Rehoboam was even going to make it even more heavy-handed. But they didn't see the connection to David and the blessings that would stem from David and the riches, riches that were actually theirs. It's not merely there's the physical in which they see. They, I think they were quite focused on Jerusalem and how Jerusalem got all these blessings and all these buildings. But they didn't quite see the spiritual blessings that were connected to David and his promises. As we saw, the promises of David weren't merely just a physical. If you you read it and you're just looking at David's house, then the, the promises aren't really fulfilled. But if you see them as more spiritual and and connecting to Christ, then you see how they are actually fulfilled. This inheritance is is the blessings which Christ gives his church. And the people of Israel are saying, We don't want that. We don't want that covenant. We don't want that blessing. Esau didn't really give up a lot physically when he sold his birthright. There wasn't a lot that Isaac really had to be able to give. It was a gravesite, a graveyard. That was the extent of the promised land that Abraham owned when he died. But it's really the promises that were connected that... Esau really walked away from. And here Israel seeks to be able to walk away from David specifically, the promises that God had made to David. You'll see this throughout this passage. It's it's quite clear when it, it speaks of the house of David. It's not the house of Rehoboam. But it's truly connected to David and the promises. And you see that here in, in Hosea chapter 1, when, in verse 1, when one is like a vulture over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They're setting up their own kings, following their own ways, their own rules, their own laws, but also they're walking away from his covenant, the promise. 
And they're going to make a new covenant. Remember in Shechem, one of the main things that happened in Shechem is the, the people of God gathered under uh, in Joshua chapter 24, and they made the covenant with God and said, we're going to keep this covenant and this promise and this law. And now Israel at Shechem is doing the exact opposite. They're saying, God is no longer our king. We want to be our own king, and we want to follow our own laws. We'll see this with Jeroboam as he sets up his own forms of worship. They want to do it their own way. Now, this does not mean that there's never believers in the northern kingdom. But we do need to see this, this movement quite early of this separation. We'll see it very clearly as Jeroboam next week sets up golden calves to be able to worship, walking away from the prescribed way the Lord had told and instructed the people to worship him. And so too, as the promises were made to Abraham and given to Isaac, they weren't given to Ishmael. And so too, the promises made to Isaac were passed on to Jacob and not to Esau. So too, that's what they're saying when they say, we don't want a portion or inheritance underneath David. So what happens next? Here at Shechem, you might say that the founding fathers of the tribes of the, the ten tribes of Israel signed their Declaration of Independence. They've said, we want no part. We, the people, refuse your heavy-handed rule. Walk away from your God and your law and your worship. So how does Rehoboam respond? See this in verses 17 to 20. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was a taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. The king Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So here... Uh, all of this has led up because Rehoboam follows this un, uh, unwise advice of his young uh, friends that he grew up with. And here, maybe again, he goes to his young friends and sa says, you know, what advice do you give to me? And he says, well, let's send this man Adoram. Adoram, uh, we're told in verse 18 quite clearly that he was the taskmaster over the forced labor. Now it could be uh, Adoram, who was there in Second uh, Samuel chapter twenty, verse twenty-four. Uh, underneath David's reign, there was a man Adoram who was over forced labor. It's uh, quite possible David reigns forty years, Solomon reigns forty years. This is early in Rehoboam's reign. It's it, quite possible that uh, this man uh, is, you know not older than 80, but it's also quite possible that here at the end of David's reign, he comes into this position. He does it over all that period of time of, of Solomon, and he's still in this place and position uh, there of power in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. But more likely, it's a shortened version, uh, what we see in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 6, uh, six that Ashir uh, Ishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoram, the son of Abda, 
was in charge of forced labor. So it could just be a shortened form of that. So Rehoboam does his second foolish thing here. You could say there's many more foolish things that he's done, but who does he send to be able to go talk to the people of Israel? He says the person who has been using the whip to beat them, the one who's going to use the scorpions to attack them. Now, you remember Jehoram, uh, Jeroboam, he was over the forced labor of the tribe of Ephraim, Joseph's son Ephraim, and he was over that. And then there was this conflict that arose between him and Solomon that led him away to flee to Egypt. So here, this forced labor is generally the, the big talking point. And maybe Rehoboam's friend said, you need to show your power again. They didn't understand it in the first place. You need to send the person who's going to beat them and whip them, and he's got to show his power over these people of Israel. You need to, they're, they're getting out of control. You need to get your people in line using the heavy-handed fist. So they send Adorim, and, and Adorim uh, is there. He's the one that uh, Solomon would have used here. Their main issue that the people of Israel have is that Solomon made their yoke heavy. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father for this, his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam sends the guy that everyone hates. doesn't go well for him. He's stoned to death, and clearly Rehoboam, in, in some way or another, is watching on the outskirts, and he, and he sees this happen, and he knows that there's a revolt, a mob, that's going to seek to be able to rule. So he, he flees immediately. He races home. Now, just briefly, uh, uh, in verse 20, we see something interesting there at the end where it says, There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Um. This is just an interesting comment because right after that, in verse 21, we see in, um, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So, so is it Judah or is it Judah and Benjamin? Look, there, I don't think there's an easy way to be able to try and answer this. Um, I think here it, it could be that there's a period of time. Here Rehoboam runs and, and Judah says, we're going to follow Rehoboam. And, and Benjamin sitting there going, we don't know yet. We don't know where we're going to side, what we're going to do. And then Benjamin get together, they have their meeting, and they say, who are we going to agree with? We know that uh, from the start there's going to be ten tribes going to the north and at least one in the south, what the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite said. I, I really don't have any real comments beside that. Here you've seen the loyalty of, of Judah, particularly to David and his house. Benjamin in a small house might have, have always been loyal to David, and, and maybe they're seen very much together because that's where the monarchs came from. You have the Saul and David relationship. But when sending the most hated person doesn't work, Rehoboam tries a second time to do yet another foolish thing. In verse 21, we're told what his, his other response is. Rehoboam came to Jerusalem. He assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom of Rehoboam to the son, the son of Solomon. He gets home and, he, and he's trying to work out how to be able to deal with this situation. 
and he, he chooses 180,000 chosen warriors. Not just assembling an army, he's getting the Marines, the, the SEALs, the Delta Force, the Army Rangers, the best of the best, to be able to come forward and fight. Now this is a large number to be able to go and try and attack. A number, number of references in Second Samuel chapter 24. The numbering of the whole people uh, of Israel as Joab comes back. In Israel there was 80, uh, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 50,000 people. So here he's, he's grabbing a large number of people to go and attack uh, the people of Israel. But for a particular reason, we see ultimately in, in the end there of verse 21, we're told to be able to restore the kingdom of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Up to this point, it's always been, we've got no portion in David. We don't have any portion of the son of Jesse. It's David's house against the people of Israel. But here particularly, it just mentions that Rehoboam's the son of Solomon. Now, it's a possible hint of words that there's this contrast here of the promises found in David are not connected to Rehoboam directly and that Rehoboam really wants his own kingdom to be able to rule and to reign. He's not worried about God's kingdom. He's not worried about God's promise to David. He's worried more, mainly about himself. Now I think that can be uh, putting too much weight on this comment, but I think it is worthwhile pointing that out. But what's interesting, he's willing to be able to fight, to be able to wipe out the people or to, to beat them into submission. The first to beat them in whips, the second to win them with swords. He's willing to do all this, but he's not willing to lighten their load. Interesting way to be able to, to view them as we think about how the Gentiles rule and reign, that Israel is, and Judah are getting just exactly what they wanted, a king like other nations. All they wanted was to lighten the load that was upon their shoulders. So now Judah and Israel are at war, on the brink of war, about to fight to be able to find out who will win. We see an interesting change event this resolution doesn't end with a battle that's conquered we see a prophet come up and speak in verses 22 to 24 we find out that but the word of god came to shemaiah the man of god say to rehoboam the son of solomon king of judah and to all the house of judah and benjamin and to the rest of the people thus says the lord you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So Shemaiah, Shemaiah uh, actually just means the one who hears and obeys God. He's known as a man of God, a prophet, which is somewhat important as we think about um, in chapter 13. But short and sweet, this is all the prophet says. You're not to go up and fight your relatives. You're to go home. That this, what has happened, comes from God. 
What is it? Again, we pointed this out last week, that all of this, the foolish choices, the actions, the pride, the greed, all of this is to fulfill the punishment, the discipline that comes from the Lord through what Solomon did. Again, another interesting thing to think about as we think about here Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. That here Rehoboam is dealing with the response and and what had been told to Solomon. Because he had turned away from the Lord and worshipped other idols, worshipped other gods. This is the effect that flows through his son's actions and the kingdom in which he ruled. It's torn out of his hands. The Lord disciplined Solomon in his house through Rehoboam. That all of this was to be able to fulfill God's word, which is spoken by Ahijah, the Shilonite, um, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But what's interesting in this is that the response of the people. What do they do? The end of verse 24. So they listened to the word of the Lord. And they went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Started speaking about what's the thing that leads to their demise of the nations of either Israel or Judah. And almost all the time, one of the key factors that I think you will see is is the nation's relationship to the prophet. Do they listen and obey the word of the Lord? The prophet comes in as as somewhat of a, a, a lawyer, equipped with God's word to be able to proclaim God's word and his law and warn them of their folly and their foolishness to be able to uh, follow God's law rather than the one in which they laid out. To worship God in God's way rather than the way they wish to be able to devise or make up. And one thing you see quite clearly is that, that throughout the tribe of Judah you have periods of time in which they actually listen to the prophet. Other times in Israel... They very rarely ever turn and repent. You see it clearly in this chapter, and then you see it clearly in in Jeroboam as he's confronted by a man of God, and how he responds or does not respond, you might say. And the rise and fall of the nation depends not really on all of these external situations, providence in all of it, But do they listen to the warnings of God? Judah begins here, at least in this point, trusting and obeying God's word, at least listening. That what you see here is maybe a glimmer of hope for this nation of Judah. Although Rehoboam has followed much foolish advice, The advice in which he follows right at the very end is the one that probably saves the kingdom. Hypotheticals are never helpful, but but here he actually listens to the prophet. The pride of Rehoboam is squashed in this moment. It's a lot to be able to admit defeat, especially after calling all these great men to arms. But that's what he does. Why do kingdoms fall? God's providence is a simple answer. But ultimately they set themselves 
either against God's word, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what we see at the very beginning of Israel's start as they seem somewhat opposed to the promises that are given to David. They do not want them. They do not seek them. But ultimately, what we will see is they do not listen to the warnings that God gives them. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.